Okay. <laughs> this means get ready. This means go. Okay. All right. Okay. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and I'm sitting here today with Susan Hutton. Uh, welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. Um, Susan is here. Uh, she's she, Her book is on the vanishing of large creatures. And by way of introduction, I'm going to read your, your bio capsule on the back of the book. Um, very professional here. Excellent. <laughs> and also, um, thanks to Alex Sergey for being our fine engineer for the day. Thank you, Alex. I, I Captain. Um, Susan Hutton received her MFA from the University of Michigan and held a Wallace Stegner Fellowship in Poetry at Stanford University. Her poems have appeared in Poetry, Field, Plowshares, and many other places I was looking online, and, and other magazines, it says. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with her husband and two children. And her husband would be Michael Byers, who is the, the second person I had the, the great <laughs> honor of interviewing on this radio show. Yep. So um, it's, it's in the family. And then soon, maybe Hazel and John one day. Absolutely. I think that they think they're ready right now. <laughs> really? We should have invited them. Made it, you know, because it, it would be appropriate because there's lots, there's a family presence in your, your book. Absolutely. And so, and, um, and, and Susan's book was, uh, it came out this year, 2000. 2007, in case you guys are worried about what year it is, 2007 Carnegie Mellon Poetry Series. Um, so, Susan, I'm glad you're here. Thank you. And Thanks for asking me to come. Oh, well, 
Thank you. Thank you. This is where I get flustered now. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about your biography, if you don't mind. I thought we could um, start from the present and mm-hmm. just as a way of um, uh, getting to know you a little bit, maybe we can chart the places where you live because they, they come up in your poems. And so we're here in Ann Arbor. You mm-hmm. live here currently. Right. And, uh, and then you came from Pittsburgh. Uh, yeah, we did. We made a full circle. It took us about um, 12 years to do it. But we've been here for not quite a year. And before we were here, we were in Pittsburgh, and we were there for three years. And before that, we were in Seattle for about five years. And then we were in San Francisco for two years, and then here for two years. Oh, okay. And then, yes. and do you mind if I'm nosy and ask um, where, because I, I don't know... Um, where you grew up or like sort of your your real foundations of Susan Hutton. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit and outside of Detroit. And so Ann Arbor was always a mythical place for me. It was the cultural mecca. And and so it was really exciting when I got accepted to graduate school here. And when I came here, I was um, 24 when I came here. And so it was still really young and shiny and new to me. And... um, and it was familiar too, and so it was. It was a really great place for me. And was your family still based in Detroit at that time when you came? Because you came for the MFA program and in poetry. I did, um, which makes sense with the book of poems. <laughs> <laughs> Susan's not pulling any punches right now. Maybe later. <laughs> um, my parents moved to um, Georgia um, a couple of months right after I started the MFA program. Oh, okay. So they were here, but I was the last one. My brother lives in Florida. I have one brother, and he lives in Florida, and they now live in Florida. Oh, right. So it was just me, and I had moved here from directly from Detroit. I was working at a, um, a publishing house in Detroit, and I still had a lot of friends who lived there. And when we were here, we went back every weekend. We went to the farmer's market or the museum, or we went to go see my friends. And so I still felt like I was very much attached to the city. And I don't have that experience now. The friends that I had don't live there anymore, or I've lost touch with them. But, so you, it's, but have you have you taken the the kids back and said this is this is where I grew up? These are the this is the neighborhood, or no, I haven't done that. I grew up. I went to five elementary schools, so I grew up in lots of different places around, and so it would be sort of a long day. <laughs> to back them in the right. And now we're going <laughs> okay. to a museum, kids, because Hazel and John are pretty young, right? They so, are. Yeah. They're very small. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they are five. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, well, let's see. Well, um, uh, so you're you're maybe a little more of the biography mm-hmm. here. Um, you were you're. This is such a great surprise that you're from Detroit. That was like I a am. gem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't because yeah. I, I had no idea actually where you were going to say you grew up because mm-hmm. it seems like you could be from anywhere that not that I don't, I don't know you very well Susan, right. so but, <laughs> but in no way I was <laughs> you're from Michigan what? yeah Michigan. absolutely I've, I lived here since I was three and 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 um there your your family plays such a, a a large oh wait where 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 were you before when you were three we might as well get every <laughs> nitty-gritty <laughs> people are rolling their eyes as they're listening to the radio right now <laughs> yeah um i was born in buffalo new york in okay. december very bleak um and mm. then we moved from one thriving uh working town to pittsburgh 
And then we moved to Detroit, so we hit all the highlights in the early seventies. Wow. Exactly. <laughs> the yeah, the the big towns that were um, have had had their day. Well, exactly. not that I, I'm sure everyone's they're having renaissances of their own now. I don't they mean are. to defame yeah. any place or <laughs> it actually makes them more romantic though, especially for poets. It's mm-hmm. sort of um, I'd almost think a point of pride that being from these towns mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah, it was very much a part of my identity for a long time. And when I was here, I was working on a long poem about Marvin Gaye, who was just fundamental to my adolescence. How so? Um, I guess because I knew the house where he lived. It was kind of near the house where, where I lived. And there were so many um, experiences that I had that were really powerful communal experiences. Um, I was in this beautiful department store in Detroit called Hudson's when I first heard Midnight Love and I was riding up an escalator and everybody around me was dancing. You know, there's shopping bags. We're moving and oh, everybody's bonking into one another. And it just, it, it seemed like he just kind of made appearances. And I remember when he was killed that every radio station in town was playing him again and again and again and you just couldn't tune in any place without without hearing his voice and how strange that was it really struck me that somebody who was no longer alive was still accessible and was still familiar in these ways and it it became one of those little niggling obsessions about you know what does it mean to have a recorded voice and what does it mean to have a video and how does that alter our experience of memory and he just, for some reason, was somebody who was really important to me. And and just speaking about him, it makes me think of your poems. Many of your poems speaking about like this notion of time, and that mm-hmm. that and in space is so vast. Like everything, you know, is is potential. Is there's a a probability for things, and that there's moments that are happening that will always. Um, like you, I think there's there's one line where you say somewhere um, I have been married to my husband for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So this this idea of time and and things that once they are they always will be. It sounds like right. that was it struck you with Marvin Gaye. Um, Absolutely, and it struck me with the whole city because it was untouched for most of the the, the era that I was growing up. That the the riots. We're there in '67, and I could—I knew where the dry cleaner was, where they had started, and it was still standing there. And the houses mm. that were around it were still standing there, and nobody had come by and plowed them over, or um, they were burnt shells, or they were. But you or, could see what happened. Yes. You, you could, there was an explanation for this vast emptiness. You could see it was this and this and this, and there was something really comforting and um, important to me about being able to trace back where it had come from. Because it's unsettling when things are are raised and and mm-hmm. and then other things are built upon them, and I guess mm-hmm. that's sort of the what what uh, <laughs> I'm like holding on to things. I like lean towards the Amish and the Luddites and that. Like I want the, Absolutely. the old ways. But um, yeah, I went to high school in the suburbs. I went to uh, junior high in the suburbs, and it was a completely different experience. Everything was new, and it was farmland or it was just undeveloped fields and. And it was anonymous. It was just that history, history was suddenly emerging right here. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what happened before. And it was a strange thing to kind of wander into place and feel no connection to it or feel like I couldn't locate where I was in the map of human experience. At the continuum of, yeah, definitely, which is very important to you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because in, in also in your your book it seems like I, I almost started to list all the names like the, the historic figures and the or from Maria Callas to Donald Duck to Henry Hudson like mm-hmm. every Van Gogh Mandelstam you know everyone there's mm-hmm. so history is very important to you in a sense mm-hmm. of place and mm-hmm. and actually when you were speaking about it Susan um, the, you even made that sound pretty whereas sometimes I immediately have this image of the the strip malls everywhere <laughs> so that's our new new history right or right yeah i i'm very aware of the strip malls too and i try to look beyond them and you know see the little stand of trees but but it's it's not very attractive right. <laughs> and it's hard to really evoke some strong reaction to it except ugh. yeah yeah well um and even in, when you take a greyhound now too it's you're probably going by these it's um maybe there's a few small towns along the way because mm-hmm. the greyhound tends to hit those different towns <laughs> sure, have you ever taken the greyhound season of course i have yes <laughs> what's your greyhound story <laughs> i have a couple of them i took a greyhound from detroit to iowa city <laughs> Ooh, how many hours was that oh i don't remember it was it was many hours i think maybe 10 um and, you know, it was unpleasant in the way that riding the Greyhound often is. But it was also, I loved taking that uh, impersonal drive through the landscape and, and seeing all of these things and knowing that there was somebody who was probably looking out at me. You know, the same thing that would happen at a train, that you knew what time the train would be coming through. And so you would look up and see it. And, you know, there were the strange lights. And it's really, it's very interesting to me to see the, the way something that you expect, that kind of routine, that kind of habit can structure your life and can seem so uh, novel to the person who's on the train or the person who is on the bus. They, your, your attention is trained on the landscape and you're noticing all of the, all of the things that are to see, but, but you're having these, these two experiences that are very different. Two people are having the same experience that are very different. And that's, that's very interesting to me. That happened in the same time, in the same place. And you're part of a movement, too, if you're Absolutely. riding the right. bus or the yes. train. That's, right. that's such an interesting experience. A movement through. And, uh, and, and trains are like that. The sound of the trains mm-hmm. can be very important if mm-hmm. you're living in a town. Like mm-hmm. we do where the train comes through. Right, and exactly. You hear it and you mm-hmm. you know what time. It's comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I wish that I had um, some Simon and Garfunkel to play <laughs> on our next break. Like we could, I could just like sort of nonchalantly say, and now for the break and Simon and Garfunkel, I've gone to see America would come on. But sadly, we don't have that song coming oh, up. Rats. I was um, really hoping. But, but we'll go to break now and then we'll be back to talk more with Susan Hutton.
Good afternoon. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writer Show. Um, today, I'm speaking with poet Susan Hutton. Um, and before, we've been talking a little bit about Susan's, her her past, her biography. But now, let's get right to a poem, Susan, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to read the, the title poem from the book. The book is called On the Vanishing of Large Creatures. And, of course, this poem is, too. On the Vanishing of Large Creatures The Mayflower's passengers boarded without any inkling they would be revered. We imagined their journey with clean sails and blue sky, and the galley was probably filthy. Meriwether Lewis finally reached the Pacific after writing those dutiful descriptions of roots and rivers and new species, and just carved his name in a tree. Michelangelo, painting the Sistine Chapel, finished eventually and went home. But that fervor must be somewhere, as when the music finishes and floats off into the air, as when Stevens walked to work writing poems in his head, and when he got there, let the private part of his mind keep going, as when Van Gogh kept painting himself in the asylum because he was the only model he had. Oh, the spring river moves around the ice, and the flows chime out their ruin, taking with them the shape of the winter banks and the stones sloping down toward the bed. In bed, the body's glorious grasp of its anatomy will move off with its pleasure, and the shapes of the bones, the muscles, the tendons must all be relearned. No one remembers when it happened, but we were anchored to the earth in the time it took to draw water, hand over hand, up from the well. The stone wall stood unassisted all those years, and the oceans were once filled with giant creatures the fishermen stripped from the sea. Thank you, Susan. My pleasure. Oh, that was wonderful. And you actually just, um, uh, you, you backed me up there. Thank you about the, <laughs> the names and the historic, um, the, the, the importance of history within your work. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. My Completely pleasure. unplanned. <laughs> um, and um, is that, was that something that was conscious, this idea of um, it, always like looking back to that the anchors of history or calling on um different figures from history is that a, a conscious decision that you're making in your work or is it some or something that you'll always do do you think i mean how would you know that <laughs> the questions no, i maybe ask it's working so far <laughs> um no i think a, a lot of times they come into a poem that i'm writing because they made a first appearance in my journal, which um, I'm pretty dedicated to. And um, most of the things that wind up in my journal are things that um, were momentary epiphanies to the sorts of obsessive thoughts that I have or niggling worries that I have. And um, and sometimes they stayed, and, and they would stay for a long time, and I would say, oh, yes, that's the way it is. I understand this. But sometimes they would change. But there was still something really valuable in looking back at them because I could remember the emotional quality, uh, the feeling, the quality of feeling that um, came from reading them and the way that when I would look back at them after I'd kept the journal for a long time, I would find different things that were overlaid that, that I might think one thing for a while and then I would say, oh, actually, no, it works this way. And then I would find something else. Oh, actually, it's like this. And, and I started putting index tabs when, um, <laughs> when I would find things in my journal that um, made me think that I was finally finding out a way to um, 
just find some sort of satisfactory answer to something that was bothering me. And they came to appear like natural metaphors in a way. Yes. And so... Um, Homegrown. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in the way that a metaphor works, you would say, it's this, it's this, it's this. And there was something that was really charged and um, and true in those things that that I intu- intuited my way toward in that... Um, that kind of dictated the pace of the poem or that um, suggested a tone for the poem that was really embedded in the original discovery of whatever it was, you know, whatever I had written down, something that I thought or read or saw that made me feel like that was an important thing. And the new connect the the new discoveries of the connections between them, mm-hmm. and then so so the journal is that something that you say you you go to it and you you you're you're close to it. is that something that's like a part of your everyday practice is mm-hmm. it okay it is I don't um, when I was writing this book my my children who are twins were one and two and so I didn't really have a whole lot of time to be saying oh I think I'll write in my journal right (laughs) pop it over and so it was often just sticky notes that I'd stuck on the telephone or on the cabinet or and I would just kind of collect them at the end of the day and and transcribe them and say oh it's it's this or just stick them in the book and um that made me not forget what it was that I had thought about during the day and it also had this really nice way of just inserting something that felt profound in a really mundane, you know, I'm changing another diaper, I'm making dinner, <laughs> we're now going for another walk. And, you know, just, they were nice anchors in my day. And um, and do you also, would you, earlier, do you read widely? Because you said that these, these mm-hmm. for example, the, his, the historic people that are popping up, are you um, reading philosophy and, and histories or what, or just every, mm-hmm. or the newspapers, what... The newspaper. I, I read a lot. I, I'm, I don't read a lot of philosophy. <laughs> I wish I did. It would be nice to sit here and say, yes, indeed, I read philosophy, but no, I don't. <laughs> and now <laughs> for our section on Kierkegaard. <laughs> don't ask me anything about that. I can't talk about it. We can do the Monty Python version of that. <laughs> Excellent. I'm up for that. Um, but yeah, I read um, the newspaper and my husband is a really avid science reader and every now and then I'll pick something up and there will be something useful. It seems that. That, that science does, because you, mm-hmm. you have um, neutrinos and then mm-hmm. neutralinos. I think a different, like a slightly different, uh, I, I didn't know that, that w- there was a neutralino. I hope I'm pronouncing it mm-hmm. correctly. Um, maybe scientists aren't listening to us right now <laughs> and Let's slapping hope. their forehead, right? <laughs> um, but, well, um, well, well, maybe talking. Maybe we could talk a little bit about craft because mm-hmm. you started to touch on that when you were talking about um, forming. Like, there's there's a pace for the poem with mm-hmm. these accumulation of these connected um, metaphors. And um, when you're how how would you say you 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 shape your poems? Like, are you because it doesn't seem like you, do you, do you work in form? I guess I could start with a basic question. Do you ever work in form? Because I I don't. I don't see specific forms surfacing in the book. No, I, I mean, I have worked in form, and some of these poems started out as poems that were written in form because I felt like I needed that supportive structure I see. to begin with. But, um, but they do have a sort of form that um, if I have an idea, if I've been able to craft an idea into some sort of verse, whatever the meter is of that verse, I am prisoner to. And even if I change every single word, in that verse, that meter will stay the same, and and that tends to be true with um, with all of my 
my poems that I feel like there's there's a meter that accelerates or slows down or, or returns, and there's a sort of refrain that feels like a um, just a natural pattern. It's a nice companion. It's you know, it's kind of the rhythm of my obsessive thoughts that mm. these are. This is the refrain. <laughs> what happens with habit, and what is recording like, and yeah, how does memory work? I mean, those are things that I just think about all the time, and so they do have a, a sort of um, refrain just as a, a presence in my life. But they also tend to have um, a rhythm to them, and, and that rhythm is something that definitely structures the way that I write, and it also structures. Um, my journal often structures the way the poems are written and the way they evolve, and if there's a narrative, how the narrative is shaped, or if there are ideas that I'm trying to develop. You know, I might even just trace the way they happened organically to me in my head. And when you're saying refrain, Susan, is mm-hmm. that are you meaning even throughout the course of the book, the the book itself, where these ideas of memory will, um, or or. Um, or noting something about related to time, mm-hmm. um, or do you mean in the individual poem itself, or are you thinking across the the poems? I think as across the poems. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. yeah. And and the meter. So and you say when you come up with one of like the the like this this first line mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. um, whether it stays the first line or not, then it, you're a prisoner to the meter. That's it's a wonderful phrase. I, yes, then, absolutely. <laughs> So you 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 have these constraints. I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're totally self-imposed, but but yeah, they I mean sometimes my thoughts or my ideas feel so sprawling and um uncontained and if I have something that I feel is a good good way to confine them, I really it's it's quite a crutch for Would, me until I feel like I know what I'm doing. Would you say this relates to unconventional logic? Sure. That's, of course. <laughs> I love that that phrase. It's great. Yes, I was absolutely. reading some of the blurbs on the back of your book and I thought, oh, that's that's a good one. That's a, that's that almost seems like high praise, you know, unconventional logic. Yeah. And it's also something about how your poems um they never end where they begin. It's mm-hmm. completely um sort of blasting off into this other um th- it's wonderful. I love that. There's yeah, a, there's never you. a circling back that I can see in the poems. I don't think so. I mean, I mean there is some circling back. I definitely revisit some ideas again and again because I have I just haven't figured it out. Oh, but the okay, but not within the the poem itself, mm-hmm. but but in the obsession of the f- figuring things out. Yeah, yes, absolutely. oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure there's. Um, did you when you said that you were the um, that Hazel and John were were one and two when you were writing this book. Mm-hmm. So what happened to the poems when you were, um, from from your experience here in, in the MFA program? Are they po- poems that, that a few appear in the book? I'm, I'm just curious, because sometimes mm-hmm. people say, you know, well, you know, try very hard with your thesis, but n- none of them will ever appear again. And you <laughs> kind of think, really? That's <laughs> Well, that was what happened with me. Mm-hmm. I, I was working on this, this long poem that I was working yes. on when I was here, and... Um, I tried really hard, but I didn't know how to end it. I didn't. I didn't have the skill to end it, and I didn't have the the technical facility to end it. And so I learned a lot from it, and it was just so useful. And it was just a great thing for me to sit down with it every day and face the same difficulty that I'd faced the day before, and it was still there. And and uh, I'm so glad that I did it. But 
I, it, it's not publishable. And this is the Marvin Gaye <laughs> poem. It is. Well, well, do you think it could be become something else? Because you you also are an essayist. Mm-hmm. You write. I've seen uh, an essay of yours on the Poetry Foundation's website. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and maybe we can talk a little bit about that later as sure. well. Um, but do, do you think this um, can Marvin Gaye um, become an essay or? Or other, or do you feel like your your writing work really is going to be in the realm of poems and and maybe some essays? But the essays tend to be just ways that I earn money. I mean, I love doing yes. it, and it's it's great. But it's not. I mean, I've done all sorts of things that that I've loved and that have been really interesting to earn money. But it's not they're, they're not really writing to me. I, I worked at Microsoft for a while, and oh, that was okay. just. The Seattle years. Exactly, the Seattle years. And I, I wrote advertising copy, and I did, you know, all sorts of crazy things that were, you know, really useful to me because especially at that point, I had been in school for four years. I'd been here at getting my MFA, and then I'd been at Stanford, and there was no break in between. And, you know, in addition to the pragmatic, <laughs> I needed to earn some money, um, it was just really good for me to go back out into the world where everybody's primary focus wasn't poetry. And it helped me both to step away from the pobiz and the, you know, the issue of who's getting a prize and who's chosen a prize and where your poems are appearing and do you have a book yet to make me think, you know, what is it that I really like about this? Because it didn't have a presence in my daily life at Microsoft at all. Nobody read poetry. And so, and it could be yours again in a yeah. new way that wasn't just Absolutely. surrounding you. And because mm-hmm. sometimes it can be somewhat stifling. Well, well, <laughs> I'm always <laughs> working these really <laughs> cheerful notes just to punctuate the show. I think we'll go to a break now. You're listening, everyone, to Susan Hutton on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. <laughs> Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today we have Susan Hutton here in the studio with us, um, reading from her book of poems on the vanishing of large creatures. Uh, Susan, will you, will you read another? Absolutely. Um, 
I'm going to read a poem called Therefore. We know how Houdini, bound in a sack and stowed inside a locked trunk, exchanged places with his wife who stood waiting behind the screen, but we'll never know how they did it so fast. My neighbor's old dog barks at nothing, all day. Birds flit invisibly among the trees and sing for a few hours as the sun comes up. We love the planners' immaculate paths, curving through the old parks, even as we refuse them and wear away our own. The line of desire, the architects call this. It is the world, and is also not. When passing a field of corn on the freeway, the eye searches for the ends of the rows. When seeing that painting of enormous sky, the heart sinks to turn and see beyond the gallery's smudged window. We can know only so much of the world. The pumping sound of the barber's chair rising in my grandfather's shop. The dice clicking from the alley, outside, off the curb. But also the smell of the valley's alfalfa blowing in on late afternoons and settling on the stranger's hair scattered across the floor. Thank you. It makes so much sense now with um, uh, that you mentioned Houdini, uh, you coming from Detroit, because mm-hmm. one, one of his last shows was in Detroit, That's wasn't right. it? The ma- yes. m- Magic Stick or the Majestic? or I, Yeah, or it was on uh, Halloween. Yeah. Yes, yes. Right. that's a wonderful connection, <laughs> isn't know. it? It's just great. Houdini. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's always coming through. <laughs> and then, and your grandfather's barber shop mm-hmm. and the dice against the curb. That seems, and I can um, picture that all the all the more. Family has such a presence in your in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're referencing them and bringing them in, and and your friends, like the um, people you love. You have. Um, more not that other poets you know poets do do this <laughs> but it's like yours it's, it seems to be a, a, such a force mm-hmm. and um and a touchstone within within your poems yeah i think and, that's right and your great aunt too i wondered about mm-hmm. her because it seems like you have a very a tender way she appears in a couple of poems but she feels seems to be um so what's my question about family <laughs> I don't know. My grandfather had, uh, he's one of eight siblings, and so I had a bunch of great aunts, and they were all just so lovely to me and so loving. My parents both grew up in West Virginia in these very small towns, and we would go back and visit them pretty often, and my parents were the only ones who left these towns, and so it was an enormous family with uncles and aunts and cousins, and um, so it was a a really significant experience for me to go back and and I was just I was really lucky that they were they they just they adored me and they were very kind to me and so they definitely are a part of the way um, I think of myself and a part of my my experience and um, and so it it also seems as if it's a way of um, you have they can always be in the world now even mm-hmm. if they're they're older and if if um, because grandparents um, are often those are the f- first people you you lose, and mm-hmm. um, there's there's also in this book um, loss uh, mm-hmm. figures into it, um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I was wondering if if you could talk about is it the the loss comes into it because it's it's um, it's something that you were trying to come to terms with in your your own life like in, it, it was in that same period mm-hmm. um so it was just a way i guess um is there a way you could talk about like the include inclusion of loss like was it um it's probably not something that's conscious it's probably something that 
just comes into the poems. Um, there's a wonderful moment where you're you're talking about everything being one way, and then there's a phone call, and you're so happy to hear from the person, but then mm-hmm. it's the news, and and nothing will be the same again. I think it's a shot through with happiness. Is that's that right. the poem? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I had a, a very close friend who killed himself, um, and. Again, it happened when my children were quite small. They were they were two, um, and in a way, a lot of the poems that are about him are about him because when I was writing, it was really the only time that I had to think about it, to really devote my my attention to it and um, my emotions to it. Um, and so it was, I was sitting alone at my desk, and, and that was what I thought about because the rest of my day was structured with, with taking care of my kids and the things that I would do with them. Um, and so partly I think that's why I wrote about it, but also because it, it, was, it was an enormous, it just an enormous loss for me and such a sad thing, and, and it was something that, was so unexpected that I didn't quite know how to position it in my head along with everything else. And um, I guess, you know, I don't look at poetry so much as something that gives meaning to to something that or explains something in a way, but but there was something... I mean, I'm saying it from a distance. It wasn't the way it felt when I was writing it, but it just, it, it was one part of the realm of human experience, that it was, that these are the ways that we occupy the world and we experience them through sense and through feeling and through thought. And, you know, I guess it was also just about consciousness, that, you know, the privilege of consciousness of being alive and this is what it means to be a human on the earth. And it just... Uh, you know, there was the, the personal loss of having this person who I loved not, not being in my life anymore, but also the just intellectual question of, you know, how, how could you do this? Yes. <laughs> how, you know, you have this, you know, if, if, if you abide by Darwin's ideas, you know, we struggled all this time right. to become alive, and we're only here for such a short time, and how... how how could you turn away from that? And, and you actually even mentioned that in your poem. You, you sort of bend time in one of the poems where, um, oh, I, f- I forget what the title of that one, but when, when you say Paul um, s- kind of teases you about mm-hmm. your cans of tomato soup for mm-hmm. dinner, and he said you only have so many meals, mm-hmm. and I think you ask um, then it, at that time when he said that those years ago, right. did he have any idea about right. the number? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he had a hard time with depression, and it was something that was, you know, present for him in the in the entire time that I knew him, all of the years that I knew him. So, yeah, I mean, of course, there were things that I thought about later and thought, was he telling me this? Was this an an encoded message that I didn't pick up? Was this you know, where did this come from? You know, probably why didn't I see it coming? But also just. What what could he have been feeling? What was this? Right. I guess it's an intense awareness of time. And Absolutely. sometimes that makes us um, bring an intensity to different m- experiences and time with people, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Well, well, there's um, another poem I think of yours that's called "On On Being Wrong," mm-hmm. I believe, and it ends with this um, this image of you with your grandfather on a pier. I think uh, where. Um, unless I'm getting this no, terribly right. wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Oh, you got <laughs> and, it. And um, the, there's a very old men fishermen, and mm-hmm. they they end up pulling. They catch a, a turtle, mm-hmm. and it's tangled, and it's snapping, and it's huge, mm-hmm. and and then they end up putting a bucket on its head and just throwing it back in. Mm-hmm. I just think that's um, that that's an amazing. Um, it's it's this amazing story at the end of a longer poem. I don't know if you were planning on. You can't possibly read it now. I've ruined it. I've taken. <laughs> I've taken that one away. I hope that wasn't the next one you were planning to read. Um, but but why why don't you please give us another poem instead of sure. me paraphrasing them? Um, I'm going to read a poem called "In Fact," which was um, the poem in which the tomato soup makes it its appearance. In fact, the first time I see my daughter, yes, the moment later when I first see my son, precisely, the two weeks they are apart in the hospital. The day they both come home, of course. Mason jars of peaches on the cellar shelf. The late February rainstorm, and then the smell, undoubtedly. The first mornings we hear the birds come back. The time between the touch and its arrival in the brain, certainly. The years when Norgay and Hillary refused to say which of them had reached the summit first, yes. The distracted way the girl smooths her skirt, exactly that mathematically there are no beginnings or endings. That is just it, the way water clouds when it cools. After 10 years, Michael lowers himself tenderly over my body and says, we have so many years left. Visiting Michelle that winter, Paul teasing me about my canned tomato soup. You only get to eat so many meals. Remembering that afternoon 15 years later, wondering if he was thinking of killing himself even then. Thank you, Susan. That's lovely. It's a lovely um, elegy for Paul as as well, so that he... um, Well, on a completely different note, (laughs) I have a goofy question for you before we go to break. Uh, (laughs) um, It's also from that poem on being wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's a, a... I didn't write down the, the, the line before this, but it's something about ina- our, our, our human inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and you write the dawn's early light. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask if that was, um, uh, is, is that like the, the, the misunderstanding of um, the, from the Pledge of Allegiance or um, the dawn's early? Or should I have looked up dawn's early? This is yeah, my no, show right. of mistakes. No, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. It's from it's from the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, the Star. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But and um, you know there is a word from it, which is a word to describe that when you mishear something and you think that it actually is creates a new a, exactly it's a new word um, that I'm not remembering. But but it's actually <laughs> a phenomenon, and I think that's so you know interesting in language that this is you know another way that we get it wrong. And we might think we have it exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. we live our lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm making it sound a lot more pro- profound than it actually is when I'm saying this, but, but that's another thing that I think is so um, interesting about, b- about being a human, that we think about a lifespan being, you know, 70 years or 80 years, and a mosquito thinks about it, if it thinks, as two days. And just that there are so many things in the world that we don't 
catch that, that we don't miss because we're tuned to seeing it in one particular way. And, and, uh, and, and I love that. I, I love that we make so many mistakes. I love that we miss so much. You know, and I'm sorry that we miss so much, but I think that's just, it's a really great thing about humans. <laughs> and it's a potential for always seeing things, like like uh, challenging yourself to mm-hmm. try and, although that can be stressful, can't it? Yeah. You simply must see more, <laughs> more than you're seeing every moment. Yeah, <laughs> but, right, exactly. But, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's really interesting to me. You know, some people do crossword puzzles. Exactly. <laughs> you're doing this. the aerobics of vision. <laughs> well, well, why don't we, we'll go, we'll go to a break and then we'll, we'll be back with Susan Hutton. Welcome back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. And today I am talking with Susan Hutton. Um, she's here in the studio and her book is On the Vanishing of Large Creatures. And Susan is going to read us another poem. Uh, this poem is called For Tracy Cernan. And uh, Tracy Cernan is the daughter of Eugene Cernan, who was the last astronaut to walk on, on the moon. For Tracy Cernan, at night in bed, when I am not asleep, and listening. I hear my children down the hall, my son's soft snores. My daughter sucks her fingers as she shifts in sleep. Nothing must be done then. 
Nothing needs attending. The moon shines through the window. A kitchen light burns, forgotten, down the block, or is not forgotten, and someone is alone in the dark, and the rest of us will never know, as we know so little of the lives around us. Before us, in this very room, the heart broke reading the letter. The telephone rang and rang, then stopped. The last astronaut to walk on the moon left his daughter's initials in the dust, knowing they would remain there longer than he could imagine. I don't know who she is now, if she's ordinary, how she's changed. I'm so glad you read that one, Susan. Oh, good. I, really, I, I started um, uh, dog-earing the pages of the book as I was reading your book, and that mm-hmm. was the first one that I dog-eared, and then I couldn't stop dog-earing the pages, <laughs> so it was as if I was mini origami of your book now. Um, but what shape did you make? You. <laughs> it's still, it's retaining. What is it's, the creature? <laughs> <laughs> yet to be determined. Um, but, well, thank you for reading that one. Mm, and, my pleasure. Um and I, sometimes I wish this show was several hours. Actually, usually I do because um, then we could have you read more poems. And but it seems important to talk with you, get oh. get your get you recorded, so that you know maybe on an escalator someday someone will <laughs> be um, hearing hearing this, um, hearing one of your poems. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could go out with you singing that Marvin Gaye song. Mm, maybe that's not a good idea. <laughs> oh, now my heart's set on it. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted, if you don't mind, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the essay that I read on the Poetry Foundation website. Mm-hmm. Um, the one you went, when you, when you were in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, you went to visit the Chinese dissident poet um, I hope I'm not going to uh, Huang Zheng. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'll let you say it from now on. <laughs> well done. Um, yes, I could did. Could you tell us about that experience? About going bit? to see him? Yeah, and why? Why? Like how, how it happened and um, um I pitched this idea to my, my editors, and they were interested in it. And in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is one of five cities of asylum that are in the United States. It's um, part of the North American Cities of Asyla, Asylum Organizations. And um, and he was, you know, he was in my town, and I didn't really know very much about him. But, um, but I, re- I wanted to go and meet him, and I'd read a few things because he was in the paper a few times, and so I knew a little bit about him. But I wasn't able to find any of his poems anywhere. I was able to find a few online, but he didn't have any books that I could buy, and I just I couldn't find out very much about him. So I got in touch with the man who facilitates uh, the the program in Pittsburgh, and he got me in touch uh, with Wang Chang. And um, he lives in a neighborhood that is called the Mexican War Streets, just because that's the the, the names of the streets, mm. which is you know a little bit of a dodgy neighborhood, but it's also a really interesting neighborhood. The Andy Warhol Museum is there, and there there are a lot of things going on there, and it's 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 a great neighborhood. It's fun, and the houses are beautiful, but it's a really old neighborhood, and there aren't you know streets that we would recognize as streets. It's more like alleyways, and so oh. it was kind of a you know, running through a, a, a habit trail to, oh. get, to get to where he, he lived, trying to figure out, is, okay, is this a street or is this an alley? Okay, this is an alley. I, maybe it's this one. And I finally got to it, and I knew which house was his because it had these huge Chinese characters painted on the outside of the house. And it was just such a striking thing to to be wandering through these streets. And some of them were a little dingy. There was an abandoned shopping cart here and there. And there would be a BMW parked somewhere, you know, some other, other fancy car. 
And then there was this house <laughs> with, with these huge, huge characters. And and when I went inside, it was just this really beautiful, airy, light house that had a, a beautiful garden. And uh, they'd made tea for me. And he was there with his wife, who spoke English. And then uh, another woman who spoke English that was a little bit better than his wife's. And so it was an interesting interview because it was a, a chain reaction, you know, really operator, you know, in the, in the game that we played when we were right. kids. Because he spoke, he speaks a very particular dialect. And so I would ask a question and the one interpreter would translate it for his wife and his wife would translate it for him. And then he would get the question and then it, it would come back and to not think about the act of translation and where language fails was impossible <laughs> because here we were right now. And and he's just, he's such an interesting character. He's very small and um, charming and sweet and really gentle. And and it's striking to actually meet him in person because his experience has been so extreme and so horrific that he was in uh, work camps and was persecuted really for years and years and he doesn't retain any of that that sort of experience there isn't anything that radiates off him that says bitter angry he's just he, he's just so open to the world and so um entranced by it and and able to really see things or at least it sounded like he could really see things as as his words came back to me right and and both because of where the interview took place in his house, which was just beautiful, and because of this, I, I really liked him, and I really liked the interpreters, and it was it was just it was really fun. W were you able to after this, Susan? Were you able to find some of his poems? Because in the, in the essay, it you you noted um, they're they're used mostly um, the translations into English. It's um, used as a textbook mm -hmm. for one hundred and twenty nine dollars exactly. for one book, and right. so that makes it sort of inaccessible to everyone. And exactly. how ironic then that you know he's his words aren't in China, but neither are they here, even though when yeah. he's supposed to be mm -hmm. uh, f free. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and his sponsor in Pittsburgh, the man who facilitates the program, had taken it kind of upon himself to put Wang Cheng in touch with different publishers, and he was trying to get his books published. And I think they've had a few close connections. I'm not sure that a deal has been sealed yet. But have, have you ever thought of translating, working in translation? I have thought about it. Um, my language skills are not terrific. I, mean, I speak French and languages that aren't particularly useful or <laughs> or rare. Um, <laughs> we mustn't we mustn't speak ill of the French. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not speaking ill of the French. I'm just, just kidding. Speaking ill of my choices for the language requirement in high school. <laughs> no, I my Spanish. I know it's it's nothing to um yeah, not the languages where you think there really needs to be someone who can work at find these poets and bring them right to the to right. the states. Exactly. Um but I have thought about it. Um there's this terrific reading series in Pittsburgh that's called the Gist Street Reading Series, which takes place in a, a sculptor's studio and has this beautiful view of the skyline and, and draws wonderful poets. And one of the poets who I saw there is uh, Thomas Salomon, and he was there with Matthew Zapruder and uh, Joshua Beckman, who both translate. Um, and I think Matthew had, has translated some of his poems, but just the way... It, it, those poems had 
clearly been taken from a particular place, a particular geographic place, and um, presented in a different place. I mean, he, he's from Eastern Europe. I can't remember exactly where he's from, but but it, it had that kind of sensibility that you see in Charles Simic and 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 other poets that we know, but. It, it just didn't have anything to do with America and anything, right. definitely nothing to do with Pittsburgh. And it was wry and um, f- full of humor. And and it was it just a, a really striking thing to hear him talk and to see the people who had been working with him and the way that, that they had helped him to shape these poems. And he also speaks English extremely well. And so it was... Oh, I see. So that- it was great. And, and he's... He's also an ambassador, and he he does a lot of diplomatic things. What a dream job! It's oh, like I Pablo know. Neruda. I, I know, right? And and here he was. It was just terrific. Um, well, you know, we're starting to wind up now, Susan. This has been terrific. Thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for asking me. Do you have like a? I know we don't have much time, but a, a poet's manifesto at all? <laughs> like any sort of like take the fight to them charge. Um, hmm. <laughs> Poets um, ho. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, poetry in so many ways is kind of frivolous and definitely non-remunerative. But it's also just, um, you know, it's this nice distillation of, of language and experience. And uh, and I think that it's really precious because of that. So I don't know if that's a and, and poet's ho sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but if I said it the right way, it would sound like poet's ho. <laughs> no, no, it sounds good. I don't even know why I said poet's ho. That sounds like, it almost sounds a bit rude, actually. But, um, well, um, well, thank you, Susan. This You've been listening to the poems and the, and the, the thoughts of Susan Hutton. Um, her book is On the Vanishing of Large Creatures. Um, I'd like to say thanks again to Alex for engineering. Thank you for listening, Ann Arbor. And thanks to those streaming in Florida, Chicago, Seattle, and Bermuda. Um, Next week, I'll talk with Stephen L. Carter with his book. He'll be in Detroit uh, with his book, New England White, and be on the show. And then looking ahead, um, the following week on the 25th, Phileas Moss. And uh, thanks for listening. And thanks, Susan. Thank you very much. Until next time.
This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 11th of June, 2007. From KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. On today's newscast, we'll hear from Capitol Hill, where the Senate takes on the first of many battles over the war in Iraq. The Australian government begins a controversial operation into indigenous territory to investigate alleged child abuse. And we'll hear about Cindy Sheehan's hopes to spur attention to calls for the impeachment of Bush and Cheney. Those stories and more, but first, these news headlines. I'm Shannon Young with today's headlines. A Mexican guerrilla group has claimed responsibility for a series of attacks on oil facilities that have paralyzed a part of the industrial sector. The Mexican government has responded by deploying thousands of soldiers across the country. Vladimir Flores reports. The Popular Revolutionary Army, or EPR, as it's known by its acronym in Spanish, issued a communique yesterday in which it took credit for eight explosions targeting the infrastructure of Pemex, Mexico's state-owned oil company. All of the explosions were in the central states of Guanajuato and Querétaro, outside of the EPR's traditional area of influence in southern Mexico. The blast began last week and continued up until yesterday. The disruption in the flow of gas has forced auto manufacturers Honda and Nissan to temporarily close their factories in three states. The EPR stated that the attacks are to pressure the government to physically present two of their members who disappeared 